What guanawaradu sewa guego? Greetings, love, and respect from me to all of you, and welcome to the Hudson Mohawk Magazine, broadcasting from the Sanctuary for Independent Media in Troy, New York. I'm Gustosara Guate Palette Moore, a Ganyangehaga or Mohawk, citizens from Six Nations of the Grand River, Haudenosaunee Territory. Today's program is a special episode. Instead of regular programming, please enjoy our episode of the Anti-Standylion podcast. We are a media organization focused on revitalizing our communities through stories of land, language, and relationships. Enjoy and listen to your aunties. Greetings, love, and respect to all of you. You know, in the fall of 2022, I attended a retirement party at Six Nations of the Grand River, Rodinashoni Territory, for the person with whom we're visiting this week, Mohawk language revitalizer, Awanadeka Brian Maracle. About 150 people were in attendance looking so gorgeous, so glamorous, and pretty much every guest was speaking Ganyangeha, which is our Mohawk language, at many levels of fluency and with great joy. So much of what made that moment possible is due to Awanadeka and his family's decades-long dedication to restore our original language. When he returned to Six Nations in the 1990s after a distinguished journalism career and decades as a carpenter, Awanadeka and his family intersected with a great push within our Confederacy to standardize and reclaim Ganyungeha. It was up to us to uh, decide, well, where do we start? What do we say on day one, minute one? And then what? And then what? And then what? And uh, it took several years to figure out uh, the most efficient way of doing that. Over 20-some-odd years of saying, and then what, Awanadeka and his family built and grew Ongolwanagunjokwa Adult Language Immersion School at Six Nations, from which I am so fortunate to have graduated in 2021. The school is the gold standard of language revitalization in our Rodinoshoni Confederacy and beyond. And Awanadeka says all the challenges have been worth it when he hears language being spoken naturally in our community. I go to public meetings nowadays, some political thing here, land back or who knows, whatever. Uh, There's no political meeting that takes place without one of our grads, one of our students getting up and going on in the language. Jabber, 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 jabber. Not, and they don't care if people don't understand. They just feel the need to express themselves in the language. We are the Auntie's Dandelion. We're focused on revitalizing our communities through stories of land, language, and relationships. And we want to say Nyawagoa, or big thanks to Canada's Indigenous Screen Office, Deyunki Wistagenha, for making this podcast possible through their new media fund. So make some tea, take a breath, carve out a little time to listen to your aunties as we visit with Raganuha'a, Uncle Awanadeka, Brian Miracle. We are rolling. Okay, Awadaka Asadate Nadu, could you introduce yourself, Sir Brian Miracle? Why? Awanadeka Niwaksunod Neganyongeha, Brian Miracle Neotirunigeha, Don't know what I girlum. Uh, 
whole words, um, where a word exists as it is and it doesn't change. A word house, a word car exists as it is. And you might be able to put an S on the end of it to say that there's more than one, but that's about all we can do with it. Um, and there are a few things that we can do with a verb to sort of modify it to provide a little extra meaning, but it's very limited. And with Kanyongkeha, the Mohawk language, there are many pieces of information that will go into creating a, a word. And that word can be an object or it can be an activity. And uh, we will have uh, perhaps as many as six or seven pieces of information that go into saying uh, saying something, which would be uh, the same as a whole sentence in English. So one word in Mohawk is often the equivalent of a whole sentence in English. Mm. And uh, uh, learning Mohawk, um, um, the easy way is to learn all those little bits and pieces to assemble them together to say what you want to say. And... Um, the traditional way of teaching the language here for probably a hundred years mm -hmm. was to teach whole words, which is the equivalent of trying to teach somebody English by teaching them whole sentences. Mm -hmm. um, there are an infinite number of sentences in English that you can put together. The same thing about the number of words in Mohawk. There's an infinite number. Mm -hmm. There might be an upper number, but I don't know what it would be. Um, and so the the challenge is to find some way of getting a handle on putting together these bits of information and learning the rules for putting them together. Hmm. And that's what we did here with Gunnar de Wacom's work. We took all of the pieces of information that he identified and over the course of many years figured out a, an efficient way of helping uh, students uh, put them together in a way that so that they could understand and say things they've never heard before. And talk about like the Mohawk language in terms of being ranked, I guess, as far as difficult language, where would you place Mohawk? Well, the, the American Foreign Service Institute has come up with a classification system to, to describe the difficult or the difficulty, the, the differences in the length of time it takes to learn a a foreign language, and they've done that for basically all the major languages on earth. And what they found is that the number of classroom hours it takes what they call a motivated student to learn uh, a language like French or Spanish is about 600 classroom hours. So 600 hours in a classroom makes you an efficient, uh, proficient speaker of one of those European languages that are very close to English. Uh, and they say that, well, that's that's one category. A second category is one that takes 900 hours, you know, 50% longer. And that's German is in that category. Mm. I think Swedish is in that category. So those languages will take 900 classroom hours. And they've also figured out that, and they do this by, uh, by having, putting up, foreign language classes for people who want to be American diplomats. And so they know how long it takes people to get to be uh, so-called fluent speakers of these languages. And they find that it takes up 1,500 to 1,800 hours to become a speaker of Russian. Mm. 
and other languages I can't remember right now. And it'll take 2,000 to 2,500 hours to become a speaker of Arabic and Korean and Japanese. And uh, they don't have, they have never studied the number of hours it takes to learn an Ongohongwe language. And that's because they don't send ambassadors mm-hmm. to, our, to our territories. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, if they did, I'm thinking that our language is at least as complex as any of those difficult languages, which is 2,000 hours plus to become a so-called fluent speaker. And uh, the, the challenge then for us wanting to learn these languages is, is the realization that um, high school and college courses don't provide for 2,000 classroom hours. Right. Communities that put together a night class once a week, that'll be 10 years to get 2,000 hours in mm-hmm. or something like that. And so there's a, that's a real challenge to communities and individuals that want to become speakers, knowing that you have to put in those many hours. And it's also a challenge, of, uh, a related challenge of how do we fund these programs? Mm-hmm. You, if we have to, have to uh, provide uh, funding for instructors, that's a, that's a lot more um, money that has to go into salaries and payments for instructors. And the efficient way of doing that is doing it in a uh, full-time program. So this full-time can take place over the course of two school years like it does here. We spend two school years to get these 2,000 hours in. And that means that if we're dealing with adults, um, the adults come here who have finished high school and because they're adults, they generally have financial obligations. They have to pay rent. They may they may be making car payments. They may have children that they uh, have to uh, care for. So these people have to be supported financially for at least two full years uh, in order for them to become speakers. So this is a major commitment that a, a community has to um, uh, commit to in order to create a a crop of school, a a crop of speakers. Mm. And that really is a big, um, it's a barrier for smaller communities that don't have the the good fortune to have, to be sitting on a casino or or oil revenues. So that's sort of one of the, one of the binds that we face ourselves. Yeah, which we don't hear, right? At Six Nations. When you came back to Six Nations, you had been away and you had been doing other things mm-hmm. in the world. Can you talk about your life before you came back? How much time had you spent here before? And then what brought you back? So maybe that's a three-part question. Well, I left the reserve, um, I don't know, I was about five. So I started school in the city in Buffalo. And I didn't come back here till I was 45. So I was 40 years away. And... Um, uh, we sort of maintained, my family maintained pretty close ties with the reserve, so we would be back here all the time. Kept in touch that way by, uh, with cousins. Um, but when I got to be an adult myself, I went to uh, university, and from then the the number of careers that I've had, uh, kind of a, a variety. One was probably the first job I had was being a, a carpenter, mm-hmm. uh, which was my dad's trade when. When he was a young man, my grandfather's trade, 
All of my uncles, all my brothers, all my cousins, we were all carpenters. And um, in Vancouver, my parents were living there at the time. I get out there and uh, uh, get steered into uh, working at an Ongwahoi organization. There were no such things in Rochester, New York Mm -hmm. in those days. Because by that time, I had a college degree. It was a very rare thing in those days, Mm. in the early 70s. I could get a job, and I stayed at working in uh, what I call the Indian business for, I guess, eight years. What kind of organization was that? I guess most of the time, it was uh, an organization of what they called then non-status Indians. Mm. Because at the time, I didn't have a status card, my... Uh, my family didn't have Indian status at the time, be another long story. And uh, there was an organization for the, for uh, people who didn't have Indian status in these days before Canada passed Bill C-31 to put people back on the list. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I worked with them um, doing uh, a variety of things. Got to know, got to see a lot of uh, the province, uh, meet a lot of people and help out in that way and, and 1980, I moved to Ottawa to to uh, one of the last things I did in that in that field was working with an an Ongohome newspaper, without any training, without any uh, experience. And after uh, about three years of that, I moved to Ottawa to Carleton to study in a journalism program, where I got a a journalism degree, and worked at the Globe and Mail as a reporter. After that. I worked at CBC Radio uh, as a program host. And after that, probably about three or four years, maybe four or five years of um, freelancing. And then I started, I wrote a couple of books at that time. What were those books? The first one was called Crazy Water. Mm-hmm. And it's a story of what I think they call oral histories, first-person stories about people's experience with uh, drugs and alcohol, everything that people would want to say about that subject. Interviewed a couple of hundred people. Ongwehome people? All Ongwehome people. Yeah. From all across Turtle Island. I'd finished that just about the time that I would had decided to um, to move back to the reserve. Came here with, with no job and very few friends, no idea that uh, of what I was going to do. Sat down for a year and uh, wrote a book about my first year back. And that book is called Back on the Res. And then shortly after that, I began the language journey. I'd always wanted to learn language, and uh, I'd taken uh, night classes here or there, and I'd had classes with a number of fluent speakers uh, and really never gotten anywhere. I learned yod, you know, some vocabulary and some expressions, but never really got anywhere to the point where I could hold a conversation with anybody. Uh, after a few years of stumbling around like that, that uh, I stumbled onto Gunnar de Wacom's work and discovered that he had uh, done this work. And I realized then that if um, I used his understanding, I could become a speaker. The lady that became my wife was also on this journey with me at the same time, uh, and we started Ongwana uh, Kanchokwa at that time, put together students, funding, found a place, uh, got some speakers here, and threw it all together in a room. And I said, okay, Lord, we're going to put this together so that 
we can become speakers. And we um, naively thought, well, we'll put this together for a school year because that's the amount of money that was available. Mm -hmm. And we'll be speakers at the end of it. It didn't quite work out that way. It worked worked well for me because I was the instructor half the time because I had an idea of what was necessary for students to learn. And because I was sort of studying up, madly studying up the night before class Mm-hmm. on what was going to be done the next day. Wow. So we did that, and over the course of um, 20 years, uh, after having made enough mistakes that we'd learned from, we figured out uh, the most efficient route to help people become speakers. And so 20 years later, now I'm finally saying, okay, it's time to let younger people take over. Talk about all the, the bits and pieces that go into making this happen. And um, and you took enormous risk as well. When we uh, decided that we were going to try to create a program to create speakers, we looked around and and uh, the first thing we did was we researched and we went to all of the reserves, the Ongohomi reserves, our what they call uh, Iroquois reserves, and spoke to people who were teaching the language. We sent out questionnaires. Uh, as a way of finding, and this is from people who were teaching a language in all these different communities and trying to get the secrets they had about how to teach them, their techniques, their methods, uh, little tricks um, uh, about how to how to do this, what they were doing. And we discovered after doing this research, um, we thought that we'd stumble on, a, on, on the method. We discovered that there was no method. There was, there was no blueprint. There was no plan. Mm. That people were just sort of making it up as they go along. Mm. And that uh, we didn't really discover anything that we we could really base a, a program on. Some of the things they, people said were perhaps helpful, were helpful in small ways. Um, but we realized that that we didn't really have anything that we could follow. So... It was up to us to uh, decide, well, where do we start? What do we say on day one, minute one? Mm-hmm. And then what? And then what? And then what? Oh, my God. And uh, it took several years to figure out uh, the most efficient way of doing that. We're fortunate that uh, groups um, are have taken our materials, our curriculum, and have translated them into their languages. The Oneidas have. Uh, the Tuscaroras have, um, the Senecas have, and they are using that in their communities to teach the language. And um, the um, so we've made great progress there, and people uh, are 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 saving a lot of grief by following uh, our example. I I sat in on the the graduation for the Seneca program. A few years back, and uh, I sat after and watched the their graduates go up on their the first year graduates, and uh, I was quite very impressed mm. by their their proficiency in the language, the way that they could speak freely and easily about what to me was ordinary everyday stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they were very well on their way on to becoming everyday speakers, and I'd say that they easily cut ten years off the job of what wow. we did. Amazing. Um, and they were producing speakers on year one. And we weren't doing that mm-hmm. in year one. It took us probably 10 years to do that. 
Yeah, because you were perfecting the the method. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So wow, and other groups have come, not just Haudenosaunee nations, right, to look at this program. We get we get visitors here all the time from all over the place, and we get called out to other communities to go and present at conferences across the continent. We got very good friends in Hawaii who are um, who are right behind us mm-hmm. uh, and really admire what we do. Um, yeah, but we have uh, a lot of we got a lot of people who are interested in in what we do and want to duplicate what we do, and we do everything we can to help them. The problem is that other communities are not are not uh, always well equipped to do what they do what we do because they don't have what we do here. One of the things they don't have the critical thing is they don't have that listing of word bits that form their form their language. Mm. And they may not have people who understand how those word bits get put together, the rules for joining those pieces together, the exceptions. And there are people who, who, who know that stuff. Chances are that most of them are linguists, yeah. probably lots of them non-Ongohoi linguists. What the communities need is that information to be put together in a user-friendly format and to have somebody be able to explain how this works in a way that is not full of jargon or it's not intimidating in a way that is easily comprehended by students. So they don't have that ingredient. And I'll back up here to say that first language speakers, people who've spoken a language from birth, will will often, usually, not understand it either. They can speak the language like like water running downhill, mm-hmm. but they can't explain why they say certain things the way they do. They just know how to say it properly. They know when something is right, something is wrong, but they don't know why they say things the way they do. And that's the same way that fluent English speakers, like me, mm-hmm. uh, get stuck if somebody from all over the place says to me, what does this word the mean? <laughs> right. I'm going, the. Well, everybody knows what that means. It, that's a stupid question. <laughs> right. Yeah. But people who've studied the language, they can explain it. Yeah. And I haven't. And just as our first language speakers haven't studied the language. Yeah. So that's one of the things that we're short on. Another thing is the, the resources to finance a program uh, like ours, and our program has been fully financed by the community for 20 years. It was only this past year that the government of Canada put money into our immersion program. Oh, I didn't know that. That's right. This Ooh. is the past year, the first year we got funded for that. Ooh. And it wasn't the whole thing by any means. Yeah. We got two salaries, and there's more salaries involved than that. It requires a, a, community, a community that wants to do this has to realize that nobody wants to get into the business of funding language programs for Indian communities, for adults, forever, in order to give a language a chance of surviving. And we are focusing our program on young adults. We believe that it's wrong to sort of burden our children with the job of saving the language. They didn't lose the language. It's not their fault. And young adults, it isn't their fault either. Uh, But it will have to become their responsibility if we're going to do it, because we want young adults to learn the language so that they can raise their children to speak the language at home as their first language 
So these kids will grow up thinking in the language and not in English, which is what, what I do and other second language speakers do. Our first language is English and we're still, as mature adults, we're still thinking a lot in that way. So we're trying to create what they call the chain of intergenerational language transmission, mm. where the language is passed from parent to child in the home before a kid ever goes to school. We all came together a few weeks ago for your so-called retirement. <laughs> I was using the term that like this was Mohawk heaven because everyone who was there was looking fine and there to honor you and speaking Mohawk. What did that feel like to you? What was your perspective of this amazing, beautiful gathering where we were eating great food and everybody was speaking Ganyageha? Well, I appreciate that. It was a great night. I was surprised myself when we asked people to stand up at very time. Come on, all the people who were past students, please stand up. All of the people, blah, blah, blah. And I was struck to, when at one point I asked everybody who has taught the language in whatever circumstance, at preschool to university. Right. You stand up. It was a heck of a crowd that stood up. I think it was more than a third or a half of the people that were there. It was a heck teachers. of a crowd that stood up. Yeah. That was impressive. I was really pleased to see that. And Six Nations, until we uh, got started, didn't have a Mohawk-speaking longhouse. And people who had just finished the program and wanted uh, a place to have, uh, uh, probably the most important place to have our language recognized and used was a longhouse to do uh, things that happen in a longhouse. You know, from the time of naming babies to the time we bury your grandparents and everything in between, and we wanted to have that. And so pretty shortly after we'd uh, been in business for a few years, we put started putting ceremonies together, and it was the right time. And so in a sense, I'm getting credit for something that a lot of people had in of the same mind. I was in the, of the same mind mm -hmm. that we wanted to have a place where we could put the ceremonies through in our own language. And so that did come to be. And you were physically building it with your hands. Well, that's <laughs> right. my carpenter days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Um, I get pleased to look around the longhouse and see how many people now regard it as their place, uh, to see how many people sort of think of this as just a natural someplace that was meant to be. And I think it's a matter of just timing that there is this... Um, energy within the community, this longing for people who wanted to recover the language, reculture, recover their traditions, and have it done in the language. I, I happened to be at, at that point where I helped to uh, get the snowball going. You know, when you start a snowball rolling downhill, mm -hmm. once it takes off, you're no longer in charge of it. Maybe before it goes too far, you can steer it help push it to one side, mm -hmm. but it's going, it's got a mind of its own and it'll go where it wants to go. And so that's sort of what's happening now. There are a lot of things happening right now that that uh, that I've had no hand in at all. And that's because people have taken on themselves. So, and I think the tree school is a good example. Yeah. I didn't do a thing to get that thing going. You trained the teachers. Uh, but I... <laughs> Uh, Ongawana is not a teacher training facility. Right, but you taught them how to speak. We're not a teacher training facility. But people who finished go off and said, we need a school yeah. to teach our children entirely in the language. They go off and do it, and I 
you know, I wish them well and I, I am rooting for them, but I didn't do anything to help them. It's, this is just something that's that's going along and happening. Yeah. I go to public meetings nowadays about any subject. There's just a public meeting in the community. Of course, there hasn't been one or very few in the last couple of years because of the COVID. Mm-hmm. But even before then, there was a public meeting about some political thing here, land back or who knows, whatever. There's no political meeting that takes place without uh, one of our grads, one of our students getting up and going on in the language. Yeah. Jabber, 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 jabber. jabber. Not, and they don't care if people there don't understand. They got to say it. Yeah. And there's that thing is going on. I'm not coaching them. Yeah. I'm not coaching them. They just feel the need to express themselves in the language. There are people that are walking around with signage signage and T-shirts and stuff like that with the language on it. I'm not doing that. This is something that they feel is important to them. So, yeah, there's, it's, it just happens to be we're on the um, at the crest of a big wave, uh, what they now call language revitalization, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a good place to be. When I moved back, the language uh, was not in the same state. As I said, there were probably two dozen, 30 people perhaps at the most who spoke the language, who still spoke the language, but they were all old, they were all elderly. And they, as elderly people, they didn't get out much. Uh, they weren't going to public meetings and speaking at public meetings. And when they did, if they did, they didn't use the language. They would often use English as their basis for speaking to other people and only rarely use the, the language. And they didn't have a place to use more their language in a longhouse. Yeah. So it was like the language was invisible. It existed in the minds of two dozen people, but that was about it. And can you talk about one situation where you were in a cafe on reserve and oh, okay. the do you want to tell that story? Because I think it really says something about where we were then and where we are now. I'd hate to go back. Okay. I haven't been back since. Yeah, I got <laughs> I got banned from a cafe for ordering my lunch in the language. I immediately told the waitress what I wanted. I said I want a soup and a sandwich. And paused. And then I said <laughs> and said in English, I'd like soup, the soup and the sandwich. And for that I get banned. Um You got banned from the cafe for speaking Ganyangeha on the reserve. On reserve. And what was it, that? What do you think that's about? I can only go by what the owner told me, that they didn't want their staff. Their staff felt that this this uh, student or this this server was uh, being, I don't know, abused or mistreated because they were forced to deal with a foreign language. This was not right. They were sticking up for their staff on a reserve. Okay. Um, but that person is still the owner of that cafe. Mm-hmm. So I've been back since. That I think that attitude in those days it was expressed at band council meetings. People were not supportive of language because uh, we'd gone to them and asked for for money back way back in the day. Yeah, and it wasn't supported by the powers that be. Uh, we were supported by the local employment agency, Grand River Employment and Training. Great. The head person of that, Elvira Garlow, another one I have great, great respect for because she bent rules. I'm sure she bent rules that allowed us to be funded to put this program, um, to get this program off the ground. 
funded us for several years. The thing about it is, is that in this situation, we had the option of going to potential funders and crying the blues about how our language is dying and, you know, how terrible the situation this is and what a terrible thing this is when the language goes. It was early on that I realized that there's no funding available anyway. So there's no, and I tried getting funding from other outside sources and getting nowhere. And I see that, and I had sort of carried a belief beforehand anyway, that selling problems is it's not very satisfying mm. to be poor mouthing yourself and mm. and going on and uh, and talking about the glass being half full and so we were fortunate to be somewhat su- supported by great and it was only after several years of at work and we started producing speakers this got attention yeah people saw young people speaking and they could talk the birds down out of the trees. Yeah. And they said, where did you learn to speak? They were just stunned. And then when they see results coming in, they go, I want to get behind that. And so people, you know, started donating. People started, it became much easier to get funding. The band council came on site and has been a, has since become a very, very strong supporter of us. You know, 20 years ago, no, we'd get, not bad mouth, but we would, we'd say that, no, that's not what this community is about. You know, you know, some people want that, you know, that old fashioned thing where, you know, you guys do beadwork and make moccasins. Yeah. But we're into, we're in them. This is the 20th century. We're, we're beyond that. What do you think that fear is about? I think some people wouldn't understand that fear now. People who are old will remember the Indian agent here. Yeah. We didn't used to have a, a band council, as it is operated now, a $50 million a year business. I didn't have any money. All the money was spent by by the Indian agent. He controlled everything, was the boss. And I know from talking to my great-grandma, uh, that she and when I was a boy, not a boy, a young man, um, she always lived her whole life here. She was like almost, almost deathly afraid of the Indian agent. Uh, and having my dad tell me that uh, the police would show up mm-hmm. and saying, you know, you, you're you not on the band list here. you got to move. Mm-hmm. And so they were very much afraid of authority. And that mindset was sort of then adopted by the band council that came to have more and more authority here. They were applying um, a lot of that older mentality. When I wanted to live here, and this would be 50 years ago, I still wasn't on the band list. And I was uh, living with my daughter's mom. She's from another community. And uh, people were, my relatives were saying, what are you doing here? Mm-hmm. You got to get to the permission from, from the band council to live here. You're not a band member. You got to get permission. And I'm going, hey, you know, hey, cuz. Yeah. You know, give me a break. I'm from here. Yeah. I'm from here, you know. I lived here as a kid. You know, get off my back. No, you better go. So to keep peace there, I went to the band council to get permission to live on the reserve. Right. I explained my circumstances in a letter, and the band council gave me permission to live here on a year on a reserve for a year, but wouldn't give my daughter's mom permission, mm-hmm. who lived from a, was from another reserve, mm-hmm. because we were living in sin. Oh, oh, what? 
We were living in sin. We were not married. So that was the mindset yeah. in those days. People that adopted wholesale these values from the outside and applied them here and applied them with, you know, an iron fist. So things were very much different in those days. And people have been growing and growing ever since. And now people who have the ability to express themselves in their own ancestral language, well, you can't stop them. Yeah. And why is Ongoehue language important? What do you see? Like, what is the actual play out of when somebody learns their language why is it you've dedicated your entire life and that all of the energy of your family and your daughter speaks Ganyugeha and runs the or ran the online school? It's just been such an important part of your family. And in the end, why is this important? I'm glad you asked me that. <laughs> I think we all have to look at origins to get an understanding of of anything. Where do things come from? Where, how did things start? And we think, well, how did things start for us? Well, we could think about 1924 or something, one of the, whenever the um, Bantam Council was imposed on the community, we could think about 1784 when we moved over from what's, what's now the United States. We could think back to the great law and the end of the warfare between the tribes. We think back, what's, that's still not the origin. The origin is us as Ongohoi people. Where does that come from? Well, I'm one of the people that believes that it, it didn't come from uh, people who crossed the land bridge from Asia. I think that it came from the time when uh, Sungwai Adizong created two, the first human beings with a handful of clay. And he breathed life into those two human beings. And uh, what he did was that he gave them life but he also gave them a few other things. He gave them a language for them to communicate with each other. Mm-hmm. He gave them the language to, to communicate with one another. He gave them the, lang- the knowledge about how to survive in this corner of the world. You know, he didn't teach us about cactuses. He didn't teach us about, mm-hmm. you know, long-lining whales or something like that. Yeah. He taught us how to survive on this corner of the world, how to thrive. I believe he also gave us responsibilities. He gave us the responsibility to pay our respects to him, to pay our thanks to him on an ongoing basis. Uh, this is the origin of us uh, putting through the Ahondongari Wadekwa every time we come together. Mm-hmm. That's the origin. That, that's part of the contract that we have with, with our Creator that we pay him our thanks on an ongoing basis, uh, daily and periodically throughout the year when we give thanks for the different blessings of creation he gave us. Uh, I also think that he gave us certain responsibilities as human beings, the responsibility to love and care for one another and the responsibility to pass on our teachings that he gave to us, to our children the knowledge about how to survive and coexist on this landscape and the responsibility to pass on our language and our teachings. So to me, I think that the language 
is is a sacred responsibility that I have uh, with my creator, that I am fulfilling my end of this uh, contract that was made at the beginning of time. Mm. It comes to you. People that have attended the program have said that it's a life-changing experience. And people, several students have told me that, that it's changed their life. And it did mine. I've told a number of people the story about where shortly after I came back, I'd come back after having been working in Indian country with Indian organizations and, you know, going rah, 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 Indian rights, blah, 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 and so forth. And I came back here and got myself involved with the little local politics. And I came back with this activist background and not content to sit down and sit back and, and not make waves. So I'm going to come back and make waves. And so I started doing that. And one of the things that I was involved with is the issue of banned elections. And shortly after some event here, there was a public meeting where somebody got up and started bad-mouthing me and what I was doing as being a, not a good thing. And I get, a, I get annoyed. So I raise my hand to sort of speak and respond. And the chairperson is taking names about people wanting to be speaking. So I was on a list of people to speak. And I'm thinking what I'm going to say. Oh, I'm going to get back here. I'm going to straighten this issue out and clear the air. And and um, What were they saying about you? Oh, I can't remember. It was, okay. you know. Whatever. It was politics. Yeah. Uh, you know, they disagreed with what I'd done. And as I'm sitting there stewing, thinking about how I'm going to respond, this image came across my field of vision. And it was exactly like uh, the ticker tape in, in Times Square where this little message comes scrolling across, scrolling across my field of vision from right to left. I saw this thing come across there, and it was the word, Gotni Gon Rio. And I said, well, this is probably in the early 2000s. By that time, I certainly knew what the word meant. And people who have a sort of a beginning understanding of the language and are, and are, so-called culture, know what that means. It means a good mind. And it talks about that's one of the three principles, supposedly, of our interpersonal dealings. We should operate according to the principles of what they so much translate as peace, power, righteousness. But we translate as a good mind. And I'm sitting there and I sit there and I'm thinking, a good mind. I go, oh, okay. And then it sort of hits me, a good mind. And I realized that if I got up and spoke and said what was on my mind about this, what this person had said about me, that when I sat, sat back down, I wouldn't have a good mind. I'd still be upset. And I probably wouldn't have changed that person's mind. And I might not have changed the minds of other people who were in the audience. But the important thing is that I wouldn't have a good mind. So when it came time for me to speak, I passed. Well, and, you know, when I say Watkunawarado, greetings, love, and respect to you, you're such a formidable figure. You know, you're the scariest, best-minded Raginuha'a that I know. Like, you're scary. You scan, you know it. Did you ever see the movie A Bronx Tale? Bronx Tale, no, I have A haven't. Bronx Tale. Mm -hmm. 
It was Robert De Niro's first movie as a director. Okay, I don't know what year. I saw it, loved it. And there's a character in there that says to uh, Chad Palmentieri, you know, one of oh, these gangsters. Yeah. One of these gangster guys. characters. Mm-hmm. And he says to says to the Chaz character, he says, he says, is it better to be feared or loved? <laughs> but you get both. Hey, and <laughs> this is sort of rooted in what Machiavelli said back hundreds of years ago. Same question. Uh, somebody perhaps put it to him and said, is it better to be feared or loved? He says, well, he says, ideally, you should be both. Right. Ideally, you should be. But if he can't, he said, it is better to be feared than loved. But why? And, well, you have to read Machiavelli. <laughs> but the character, right. Chaz Palminteri <laughs> says to him, he says, he says it's, it's, it'd be a good thing to be, to be both. But if he can't, he says, it's better to be feared. He says, fear. he says, it's better to be feared. Fear lasts longer. So, but what I have to say is you do prepare people to be in the presence of elders that are super cranky that you're, you know, not getting the words right. <laughs> you know, it it is um, an amazing preparation. And, you know, you're a great dad. You're a great, like, you know, husband. And, um, and it's just this amazing combination of person and just so absolutely widely beloved. <laughs> so. Well, I, I trace that to my to my upbringing, my dad. Mm-hmm. I spent a lot of time working with him. He took me out on a job. He says, never carry two planks when you can carry four. Mm. Never walk on a job if you can run. Dang. He's on my case all the time. And he didn't. He didn't speak to me very long with these kind of lessons, because all he'd have to do was just look at me. He'd look at me, and I'm working. I'm realize he's not impressed with what I'm or how fast I'm working right now or what I'm doing. So I work harder and faster. When I was 13, he gave me a, a framing square and the blueprints for the building. Here you go. Lay it out. You mark out where all the rafters go. You mark out where all the studs and jack studs go. Where the stairwell goes. He's, it's your job. You know, he, he had confidence that I could do it because mm-hmm. he was always pushing me with little lessons and tests all the time. But right. I did make a pledge that I would say something to you every day, even though you're terrifying. <laughs> well, that's good. <laughs> yeah. And you know, if you talk to my missus, you'll know that she knows and she'll be the first to tell you, you know, I'm just a big teddy bear. Oh, and your daughter as well. Yeah, that, yeah. That's, that's, it's, I'm just a big teddy bear. Yeah. But, the, secret, the secret definitely is out. Hmm? <laughs> I said the secret's definitely out, and yet, yeah, the fear well, remains. I do wish uh, that the, that message sort of got out a little wider because, I don't know, I walk into a, into a room when there's little kids and they just run away in terror, crying. You know? <laughs> I don't Jeez. believe that. That's not like you, you haven't seen. Look at this, start crying. I go, what? It would have been the grooviest moments that you've experienced as you watch this work blossom? Aggie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, one of the one of my favorites is um, this would have been I can almost date it now, this would have been about 2005, 2006. One of the people who had finished our program, and in those days, 
the program was only one year long, and people and some a few people took it upon themselves to do more. They made it their business to be a better speaker than when they left the program. Mm. They made it a better speaker. They just didn't walk away and forget what they learned, but they put it to use. They they made it uh, their job to learn more, keep learning. One of those students at that time uh, who did so was Tehoda Galadu. And he, turns out nowadays we're neighbors. And he come over to my place one day and he drives up and he's got his boy, his, his oldest boy, front seat. And he, this is summertime. And he gets out of the car and he comes over. We, we shake hands, start shooting the fat. He says, says to the boy, hey, come on. Come on outside. Get outside. Well, the boy just rolls down the window and he looks at me and he says, That's a mouthful. It is a mouthful. I said, No, what's your sadiro? Would you say, say that again? He says, yeah. Well, I, I told him no. What he'd asked was, are there a lot of bees around here? Living here, yeah. Like I guess he got stung by a bee or was afraid of bees or whatever. And and that's exactly the way he said it. Wow. I still remembered it. Wow. I'm going, and this is after our program had been in business like five years, six years. He'd, uh, Deho had had a, a child, and this boy was probably only three or four years old at the time. I'm going, yep, yeah. this is going to work. Yeah. This program's going to work. And that boy is now, what is he now? He might be 18 now. I saw him just the other day. He was in uh, uh, a Dewey outfit, mm. and he was uh, at my house, and we were having a little... A little lunch, and I just talked to him. Uh, he has the the language skills if he chose to, to teach anywhere here, anywhere around. Our language loss situation has bottomed out. You know, mm-hmm. we're on the way back. Mm. You know, how many speakers do we have now? Do you think, a prox? Well, this is the what's a speaker? That's yeah. the trouble is, what do you call a speaker? You know, yeah. For funders will ask us, how many speakers did you create? What uh, We try to um, categorize it, I suppose, or define it mm-hmm. by saying, well, we use this definition about uh, degrees of, of proficiency, and it's categorized according to this one scale. Mm-hmm. And so we'll say, to simplify it, we say there's novice, intermediate, and advanced speakers. Our job is, uh, is to create advanced-level speakers, people who are good enough speakers that they can speak all day long in the language, no English, teach immersion, no yeah. problem. And that's at the upper limit. And I'm convinced that we can create, we can improve our program so that we can get the same results in less time mm-hmm. with less money required uh, so that perhaps we get to people to an even higher level so that we can get people who are capable without having to ask people in Gautnawage, without having to, to uh, look things up to write philosophical treatises about anything. We're not quite there yet. We want to be working towards that. So we will tell people that the level below that intermediate, somebody who is an intermediate level speaker, again, 
can go all the way all day long in the language without using English, but their lang- their vocabulary is not as precise. Yeah. And the pronunciation might not be top uh, first rate, but they can function perfectly well. They're speakers. Mm-hmm. And I don't have the figures. Mm-hmm. We we only have small classes. We have like 10 students max per year. And out of that, I'd say that about six of them achieve that intermediate level mm-hmm. of competency. Two achieve the advanced level, maybe two or three, and two of them don't make it. Two people will drop out for various reasons. You know, their financial troubles because they can't get along or whatever reason or other. So I'd say that we can probably count about but at least two-thirds of our people are meeting that level out of every year. But that's only six or seven people. Yeah, yeah. Wow, what so amazing. So we talk about the last 10 years, mm-hmm. that's still only 70 people. But as you said, at the retirement party, those people are teaching other people. It's already exponential. And that's just here at six, right? right. That's just out of the school. And across the Confederacy, there's fires like and people come from different communities they come here and they're you know i mean there's zoom calls with elders and there's so much going on across the communities that um is really encouraging it's really beautiful it is um so we just have to we just i'm just looking at that glass being half full you know we've got we've done uh a lot of good work lots getting done a lot more that can be done. Yeah. Lots to do. Yeah. Well, Thanks for the invitation to speak, but yeah. I'm not too crazy about talking about myself, but eh well. Yuri Hawana. <laughs> it's important. Yeah. <laughs> okay, go on up. Thank you to the Auntie's Dandelion and especially to Gasto Saraguate Paulette Moore for allowing us to share the Auntie's Dandelion podcast in place of our special programming on Hudson Mohawk Magazine. You can learn more about their media organization at theauntiesdandelion.com.